Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. My name is James, and today I am joined by a game designer, CK, designer of a World War One skirmish game, Scouts Out. CK, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. How are you? Thanks for having me on, too. Well, thank you for joining me today. I know it's uh, a three-day weekend. That's always a busy time here. And when we speak of busy times, I guess you can say that's part of the reason you designed your game um, for the busy war gamer. But before we get into that, why don't you give me your origin story? How did you get started in uh, tabletop war gaming? Well, I've been a gamer since I can't even remember. I mean, it's been that long. I started in the second edition of Warhammer, Rogue Trader, played all those. Uh, then I went to things like bolt action and some of the smaller historical offshoots. And uh, I've been painting for companies and magazines. And I finally decided that none of the games fit the niche I needed, which was I had a busy schedule. I still wanted to play games with friends and family, but I just I couldn't sit through a three hour game. You know, we'd play three hours and guess what you're on turn five of six still so i decided it was time to make my own game or at least try well so we'll we'll talk about that because i've seen plenty of games where it said this game will take half hour 45 minutes and i show up to a store and said okay this is a half hour 45 minutes start the clock and then it's well let's set up the table now let's go get food no I am here for a half hour to 45 minutes. Then I need to get out of here. So we need yep. this moving now. Yep. That's and that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to, to set up a game that was quick because maybe I put my daughter down for a nap. Maybe my wife's getting her nails and, you know, it's next to our local game store. I don't have a ton of time. And I wanted to create content that was still fun, but quick. All right. So why don't you explain the theme of your game? What's the what are you trying to capture? So we know it's World War One. What's the what's the hook that you have on there? So it's for let's just start with the, the hobby portion of the hook for that. That is how many hours do we spend buying, building, planning and painting a tabletop army? I mean, I would I would beg to differ that we probably spend way more time working on the army than it ever gets to be played on the tabletop. And while I love painting, I didn't want that. I wanted a small force. So I'm looking at about 10, depending on the points, 10 to 15 models per side. That's it. You, you could play as little as three models per side if you really wanted to, and you had a small enough area to play on. So so the, the genius part to me was, all right, 10 to 15 models. That's not long to build, not long to paint. I can get them on the table quick. Then the, the smaller forces play into the gameplay. We're not moving uh, giant forces. You're not an Imperial Guard player in Warhammer or a Tyranid player. And the mechanics works very much like chess. You go, I go, you go, I go. And this allows us to not only play quicker, I feel, but also it gives a little more individuality to each soldier and it prevents the other player from being shot off the table in one turn, which, I mean, it's always frustrating when you play a game, you set up 
In turn two, you rolled all ones, and now half your army's off the table. So uh, that that was what I decided to do. And I have a huge passion for World War One. I. I feel like it's an undersold, underrated event in history. Everyone goes for World War Two. It's charming. It's romantic. You know, the technology is amazing. But in World War One, we have officers who lived through the Napoleonic era and now they're fighting machine guns and no one has any idea what to do. So you end up with body armor that looks like it came out of the, the Dark Ages. You've got these brutal hand-to-hand combat weapons, but now you've also got machine guns, traditional cavalry, or you've got artillery, aerial reconnaissance. I mean, it's the birth of modern warfare and no one had any idea how to do it. So uh, I think it's the perfect gaming system. Uh, and that's because if you wanna play a melee style army, you can, you can play those brutal trench fights, maces, shovels, daggers, swords, uh, but you also have rifles, carbines, machine guns. Um, so with that said, the raiding parties of World War One, which is what the game focuses on, are elite soldiers from each country. We're not talking about your everyday conscript who got pulled into the army, no drafter. These guys volunteer to go into harm's way. And because of it, they're getting better equipment and they're getting more leisure time in the rear, better pay. And that's why I decided to focus not only on raiding parties, but when it came to designing the systems and equipment that they would use, I went a little more to the experimental side. You know, yes, not everyone carried an MP18, but we're only talking, you know, 10 to 15 guys out of the entire like army. So I feel like it's justified. You can, you can play those experimental weapons that weren't, often used you can play the rare equipment and it's it just adds a little more flavor to the game well so i've noticed that you're right world war one as a game especially a um tabletop 28 millimeter game um just was uh a just barren i mean there was uh two fat lardies in the mud and the blood that was the only one i could think of but they structured that game around a regular line infantry platoon with the idea that you will follow the tactics um, as prescribed. You'll be rolling artillery. Um, and then Blood and Valor came out and uh, War Games Atlantic put out their new plastic sets. And I think that's where I first came on uh, to your site is because I remember seeing in some of the World War One history books just the crazy outfits, especially like the snipers. Yeah. Like some of um, the scopes and the masks, like anyone who saw um, Boardwalk Empire, they had uh, one of the characters was a World War One sniper. And like he'd a couple episodes, he'd pull out like his equipment, like his face shield mm -hmm. and like the scopes he was using. So there's all this crazy stuff. I think the classic is the German what uh, bulletproof vest, which was like um, just a cylinder of metal with like his arms sticking out. And yeah. like they're practice shooting him and like. Yeah, he survived, but he's not running wearing right. that thing. <laughs> so your your models actually were the only ones I saw of like, well, 
yes, I could kit bash plastic, but that's going to be a long time consuming process. And you already sculpted out models of like, okay, here's the cloaks and the rain gear that they wore and the types of, um, well, I guess shovels is an understatement since those things were really just battle axes. So I think like Blood and Valor got down to actually capturing like, okay, what's a more tactical, not just the standard line companies charging each other, but more of the play like you would see fighting out in No Man's Land or some of the other theaters. But you actually got into the experimental tech. There might only be 15 examples of something, but what if I want to play the guy yeah. who got that? Um, so with that theme of spoke focusing on like the bleeding edge of what was the trench raids of just the Western front there. Um, when you designed this, did you think of it as what we call the, the beer and pretzel game, or were you looking at it as a potential tournament game? Have you tightened the rules down or thought about a tournament pack? So it's definitely at its current level, beer and pretzel. It's meant to come over. You're meant to have your friends come over or, you know, go to your game store, play a series of games because it's short enough and just, you know, just have fun. The main goal is have fun. I am working on an expansion that will make uh, an advanced section a little more competitive because I know there are players out there that want a little more competition. They want that, that seeking thrill. Um, one of my friends is a, uh, uh, an LVO winner for 40K. He won two years in a row and he loves that, that competitive edge. I don't play him because he just wipes the table with me. But um, but I know some players out there want that. So I'm working, the, the first expansion will add a few new countries, equipment, and I'm going to tighten down some of the scenarios to make it more more competitive. But of course, if you don't want the competition, if you just want the leisure play, then then you can still just do it. Well, before we get into the let's talk about the mechanics of the game. Is this, so for example, is this a D6, a 2D6, a D10? Um, you talk about 10 models. Is it individual control, squad control, and what's the turn structure? All right. So it's a D6 game. Obviously, you're going to need more than one D6. I mean, it's just how games go for the most part. I, I have uh, a I have a bag full of D6s literally right next to me. So that that's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before I go into the mechanics, that's something I wanted to focus on on Scouts Out is I didn't want to make a game that forced people to buy new stuff. Buy the rules and you're good to go. You can go to your store. You can pick up one box from Wargame Atlantic and that is your entire force. You'll never need to buy again. But, but the rules are the same or same principle, like, okay, D6s, everyone's got a D6. If you play tabletop games, D6s. If you have Yahtzee, yeah. you have a D6. Yeah, you have Monopoly, exactly. yeah. Exactly. And so I wanted to make it so the busy father or mom, who might be a tabletop gamer, but the busy gamer didn't have to spend, okay, hey, I got to go buy specialty dice. I have to buy specialty templates or tokens. I wanted everything to be self-contained and easy. So if you want to use my range, I'd love it. I would love it. If you want to use some like a pre-existing blood and valor range you have, go for it. You know, the rules, the rules handle it all. Uh, with that said though, it's a D6 system and it plays like chess. Uh, you go, I go. The initiative changes 
or the initiative role is every turn. So you might not always be the first person to take the first turn in that phase. But, uh, and each unit is really just one individual man. The whole theme is that one officer or one NCO has handpicked some of his volunteers to go raid a trench. So instead of running a squad of riflemen, you might just bring three or four, but when Harry gets hit and goes down, like that one guy could really be the linchpin to falling or losing that defensive area you might be holding or that front. So I think it brings a little more character and it's kind of what I like to think of as the Expendables movies, but in World War One, <laughs> you know? So, you know, I like, I encourage you, like, you know, name your characters, have fun with them. Um, there's no active campaign system in the game yet. Um, that will be coming. And that's really just so you can have these fun characters and progress with them. Uh, the shooting system is similar to the old Axis and Allies War at Sea, where it's a dice roll plus the training level of each in, uh, individual versus the defensive role and their training level. So you compare the dice rolls and then the weapons have a strength, which you roll for the strength and that'll tell you if, whether you've uh, hit or killed the target or if you've missed and you know it was a flesh wound or something like that. Uh, I think that about sums it up because to be honest, I tried to keep it really simple. Um, then you've got special rules, which are just modifiers uh, as far as like equipment goes. So, you know, if you add, let's see if I can find it here in the book. Yeah, so you're talking about like nationality special rules. No, not yet. Okay. Not yet. So, okay. So like right here, for example, on page 14, we deal with the different types of weapons. So okay. you've got rapid fire and small arms, automatic. Those all provide modifiers. Um, the automatic weapons you get to, mo well, those are for the heavy machine guns, for example. They get five dice, but because you're shooting so much and they're water-cooled, there's a minus one modifier to all shots. You know, you've got, so you've got those. Then you get into the personal equipment such as armor, sniper cloaks, um, let's see, war dogs. And then finally we get into country specific rules, which when I wrote the countries, I originally planned on doing, I want every country to have two special rules. And just, I, I didn't want people spending you know, four or five pages. Of, okay, I have to see which rule this is. And then let me double back, go look there. So I, I tried to stick to two nationality specific rules for each army. Uh, for example, the British have a special rule called professional regulars. Uh, in World War I, when the outbreak happened, the Germans used to make fun of the British because they had the smallest army in all of Europe, but they were the only army that was professionally trained. They didn't have conscripts. They didn't draft people into their army and just equip them. They were professionally trained and they knew how to handle themselves from the Boer Wars down in Africa. Uh, because of that, the British can't take conscripts. So you're always running a smaller army at, at the point cost. But 
you're getting some of the benefits of being professional or veteran, which is a higher training level. Uh, a few of the um, specialists for that only come in that profession anyway. So uh, that's how that works. The, the Germans had a similar rule uh, that's very unique to them, which is uh, the stormtroop doctrine. And that just allows them to move an additional three inches. So you're getting, the German army plays very fast. If, if you want an army of movement, that is the army you want to play. <laughs> They're quick, and they can bring a lot of firepower to bear quickly because of it. Uh, and then I, you know, I added more rules for the French and the Austro-Hungarians. The French do have a special third rule that is 100% optional, uh, and it was really just for fun. I thought they deserved it which is uh, if you decide to paint your army in the bright reds and blues, then uh, all your point costs are reduced because the fact that they showed up in the beginning of the war in very bright uniforms, it, it's just a fun little flair that if you <laughs> want to do, if you want to do that, then you get rewarded for the time and effort of doing it. Yeah. The, um, cause they, especially the first year of the war, they still had Zoavs. Yeah, um, bright red out there. and the the Tyrellers were there. Um, yep. Yeah, it was a big deal. Like, would would they keep by like seventeen and eighteen? Would would they keep those uniforms, or would they follow the British down like the khaki drab? Right. And it's like well, they love those just, uniforms. <laughs> it just took a series of engagements with machine guns to change their mind. But I mean, the Germans could see them literally coming a mile away. <laughs> so. Uh, then I guess the last real mechanic to talk about now that I think about it is just how you build a force in Scouts Out. That, that uh, was actually going to be my next question because um, I think especially with the – you talked about 3 to 10. So how much customization is there when you build a force? Are we the down to the level of like Necromunda where I'm picking out like what kind of respirator the guy yeah. has and what kind of sidearm? Or is it more I like – kill team were like there's a generic rifleman and here's the it's, slot there's you know i'm gonna say it's kind of a happy mix okay uh so the way to build a force and scouts out is you always need a headquarters because there's got to be an nco or an officer who decided to lead this raiding party there's an exception though for the germans uh, in world war one the stormtrooper doctrine allowed german stormtroopers to make decisions on the fly they didn't have to wait for higher command like all the other countries did. So for assembling a German raiding party, you can actually just take more troops in the, so the spot of a headquarters. You won't gain okay. the special abilities the headquarters bring to the table, but if you want to bring just a couple extra stormtroopers, you can do that. Um, but so you'll choose, an, uh, you have two headquarters slots a lieutenant, a sergeant, and a captain for each country. Um, they, and they all bring different traits, rerolls to hit or rerolls to wound, or um, the captains actually bring increased point values for scoring. So if a captain's leading your rating party, every time you score a point, you get more points than, than you normally would. But if your captain dies, you lose a large chunk of your points you scored. So it's and captains really have no, no equipment choices. They're just out there with their pistol. So it's a balance of eh, I can score a lot more points, but if I if he dies, then I lose a lot of points. 
Uh, then you have a specialist section, which you get three specialists. And they're people like snipers or medics, uh, the German saboteurs, British pointmen, uh, French marksmen, things like that, flamethrowers on a couple of the countries. Those are your specialist guys. They're a little tougher. Um, they still have their country plans. There's a little customization on some of them. Um, for example, the uh, French flamethrower, he, he doesn't have any customization. But if you go to like a British point man, you can almost get down to the Necromunda style equipment. So you can fashion him how you want him to be. Uh, after that, and the specialists are not required. Uh, but after that, you have grunts. And they are required. You need to take at least two of them. And they are your basic infantry sections. We're talking light infantry, cavalry mounted or dismounted. Um, some of the options are naval or marine infantry. Uh, they're all you know, pretty basic, pretty generic. Some of them have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, uh, the French have bicycles instead of horses. There's a slight difference there. Uh, they also have horse cavalry, but uh, you, you can choose rifles, trench guns, stuff like that. Uh, then you have raiders. Again, raiders are not required. Uh, you can take as many raiders as you want uh, as long as they fit in your point value. And raiders are, they hit a little harder than traditional grunts. Um, they're not quite as focused as a specialist. Uh, for the British, for example, you have the Lovat Scouts. Uh, that's where the, the stormtroopers fall into for the Germans. Um, these guys have a little more customization, a little more point cost, uh, but they do a little bit more. Uh, and then lastly, you have the heavy equipment section, which is, for the most part, just your, your heavy machine gun. Uh, you can only take one heavy equipment because it was going to be hard enough for a raiding party to lug around a big tripod weapon anyway. But if you were planning on an, an ambush, you know, you want to do a scenario where maybe you taking out somebody on a road or whatever, they wanted those abilities to take those weapons. Uh, and so you only get the one heavy equipment. Once that's done, your force is done and you're ready to go. Your average game is about 250 points and 500 points will basically max out your force at about 15 models okay so if you go and, like the full horde choice it'd be like yeah 15. yeah and that that includes taking a heavy machine gun which accounts for two to three models so but yeah that's 500 points for a full like a big game and uh 250 points for your average well uh i think it's a good time to ask you um when you design this game were you trying to come across as a simulation kind of like the two fat lardies approach or more um, a general, the general approach, like the cinematic outcome, kind of like bolt action. Those are like the two games I like to put against each other because bolt action creates that Hollywood, um, uh, you know, U S army airborne, like right. what, what would the HBO series show versus like, well, this is the doctrine that was developed and this is how, you know, guys moved about. What, what were you trying to capture in there? That historic um, authenticity or trying to capture the feel? I think it's actually a very hard question to answer. 
no one's asked that. So it would be, a, I think, pretty balanced. I wanted that, like I referred to him earlier, that expendable feeling like, oh, these are my Kelly's heroes, you know, um, sort of a, assembly of misfits or, you know, veterans, whatever you want to do. But I also wanted to show that <laughs> warfare is brutal. You know, it can be quick and brutal. And so the game's cover-based. If you don't utilize cover, then your forces are going to go down really quickly. No one's running around in power armor. You know, you don't get those kind of saves. Um, so, so I took real-world experiences that I had in the service that, that combat's very fast. Very, it can be very brutal. Um, so you do have to somewhat follow a real-world doctrine of, well, I... I can't afford to just run out into the open. You know, the dice rolls are not going to be in my favor. But bounding tactics from cover to cover, you know, laying down avenues of approach with machine guns, things like that really do work. But because you're not playing this big traditional company-sized element in World War I, getting out of the trenches, moving across no man's land, uh, I feel like that's a little more of that Hollywood aspect. You know, you end up with one guy that might be the MVP because you roll well. <laughs> well, I have to admit, I do like your idea of the Germans not needing a, a command choice. Think of like all quiet on the Western front. Like whenever you talked about when they evolved to the trench raids, I don't think in the book, he never mentions like a sergeant coming with him. It was always, man, we could really use some food right now. I bet the yeah. British have some. <laughs> Yeah. And so like well, the whole point was like, okay, we're into the trench. We got 15 minutes, grab what you can. We got to get out of here. And that's what it was. I mean, German stormtroopers really did pave the way for modern special forces operations. And in world war one, you see this pirate mentality of raiding and sacking, but you also see this, this regimental doctrine that did become special operations. And yeah, the, the Germans were the only country that did not require the stormtroopers to wait on like orders from higher up. They just knew that warfare changes so quickly that anytime orders get passed down the chain of command, it's too late. <laughs> so. okay. Well, let's, um, since you were talking about uh, the 250 points, um, when you came up with that and the troop choices, when you do that, you have a sense of how long you expect a game to run, like a minute, and on what play area. Um, so, okay. Where so are you we, going with that? I started on a 24 by 24 uh, little board I made because I wanted it to fit on a coffee table. And on, on that scale board, you play about five to six minis per team. And the games last 30 to 45 minutes. It really depends on how well you know the rules. Your first game is going to probably be about 45 minutes, you know, as with any new tabletop game. Because um, you, you do, you have to learn the rules. But after that, it's very streamlined. You're playing about 35 minutes on a two-foot square table. Uh, the ideal space is a, is a three-by-three. You have a little maneuver out, like maneuvering room. You can build slightly larger forces. You get more terrain. Uh, and that's still pretty close to the same gameplay time because you can still range people. It doesn't add a ton of distance to the game. We did, however, 
play it on a four by six at 500 points, which is just a blast because it, it does make the game go a little longer because you just have more room to cover. But it was fun because at that size, you can add multiple environments. So we had like a farmhouse and a vineyard and a road system and another smaller farm. It's just, it, the rules play dynamically for how you want to play and it scales up well. So if you want to play quick and dirty on your kitchen table, you can do that. If you want to go to the game store and you're like, hey, we should play like a, an hour and a half long game with lunch, let's do it. It'll work. Well, with, with such a small board area, what are your thoughts on fog of war and surprise uh so normally like um hate to use games workshop but other games have this of like the reserves come in where you split your force and there's a force on table and there's force off bolt action also has that where forces will come off the board edge so you'll like split your force and that's trying to capture some of like uh the maneuver the maneuvering outside what both people can see because you have to admit in these tabletop games you actually kind of have the god eye, God's eye view. You can right. see everything. So do you encompass any fog of war or surprise? I don't because we're not talking about maneuvering elements. The, the reality is, is raiding parties in World War I would be these small man groups that instantly clashed. You're not going to have a 10-man team and be like, oh, hey, I got two guys in reserve. You know, it just doesn't work historically or for the gameplay. Um, it's just not that that style and when you play on the small table you play very heavy on cover but it's surprisingly violent okay <laughs> you know, you know I mean, when you play that small small area it gets real brutal real quick but there is no fog of war system but like i said that's because your elements just aren't really big enough oh something we should probably in the mechanics do you have a morale system so there's, there's a there's a chance no that like hey we're done let's take nope. off there's no morale system and here's why i i've actually gotten that question a lot what is there a morale system and there isn't two reasons i hate the morale system <laughs> you know like i love warlord blood red skies games but i absolutely hate that you can spend all this time painting up these wonderful miniatures get on the table and guess what the guy rolled six sixes on, you know every every shot this turn now your whole army's off. Nobody died, but you all ran away because of the chit counter. So, so I, I left out morale. Also, because the guys doing the fighting in Scouts Out, again, they're not your run-of-the-mill average Joe Schmo. These guys volunteered for it. They know that no one is coming for them. This is like a stand-and-die type scenario. So, and there's nothing more than adrenaline that will kick into overdrive. And I mean, you're not going to run away. You're just not going to in that situation. And I think morale works really great when you're talking about big maneuvering element games. Uh, this squad of low, low trained soldiers, they got scared and they ran away and they left the rest of the line to do the work. Makes perfect sense. It doesn't in scouts out. You know, like I said, these are elite soldiers. They're there to do their job. So there is no morale system. Also, I just didn't want people to have to set up and get run off the board. So, because uh, I think, so I flashed back to there was a game Osprey 
put out called Horizon Wars. And the guy wrote in there, there's no morale system because when I move my models, I want them to do what I tell them to do. And it's like, I hate it when they run away. But um, the idea, I've seen where morale systems can shorten games. So that's factored in to where like you attract the opposing force, everyone runs away, the game ends quickly. Hence Necromunda, you can set up like 10 models and you can have a 30 minute game because you know one guy got shot and everyone says nope i'm done let's take off (laughs) and you know i think it works for some games i do i just don't think it works for scouts out it's just not the intention well you your opinion does reflect um black powder red earth he said um we're not we're playing soldiers at an elite level who know if they run they probably face a greater chance of death than if they just stay and fight exactly Um, i mean no one wants to get shot in the back (laughs) so um you know we've talked about um world war one here but it seems a lot of the focus has been western front um you know british french versus germans you mentioned the austro-hungarians but is there a thought of running this to some of the other theaters because there are actually other theaters that were much bigger oh yeah and the western front um, so I'm, I'm talking like King's African rifles versus Ascari. Um, I would like you to stop spying into my basement, please. <laughs> I, if you could just hold back. No, um, I had this massive list. So, um, I had a massive list of what I wanted to put in. And to be honest, most of it focused on Africa, Egypt, a little bit of Japan. Uh, the Eastern front is kind of my least favorite, but I do think there's some really great elements to it. Uh, So to answer your question, the game only focuses on the Western Front as of right now. And that's only because I didn't want to produce a 200-page book and and no one like it. You know, uh, everything to start this company came, you know, out of my pocket, essentially. It's just me. Mm -hmm. So, So I thought, okay, the only logical thing was I will introduce the game with the the four main factions in the beginning of the war. If there's enough interest, I will get to selfishly add on everything I wanted to. And and so the next expansion that I'm working on, um, it will introduce the Ottomans and the Russians, more than likely the Italians as well. And that will kind of bring scouts out up to the possibility of playing more competitively if you want, It's going to add a few more mechanics that I just couldn't squeeze into the first book because of streamlining. Uh, For example, we'll be adding templates um, for grenades. So there's no grenade system in the game right now. And that's because I didn't want people to, to have to do, they have to go out and buy a template, but um, I wanted I wanted to make sure the mechanic worked well, so it got left out. Uh, I'm also going to be adding some gas elements into the game, which will be a lot of fun right now. Uh, the floating clouds that, of death, like when they yeah. look around and say, what's that, what's that green smoke coming into the trench? Quite literally, yes. Uh, well, the scenario I just finished writing is uh, starts with a giant cloud in the center of the table, and it'll drift around the table, you know, So you're going to end up having to buy gas masks in the new set of equipment. If you don't, you know, you get more points, but 
somebody uses gas or you end up playing the gas scenario, <laughs> you might be in a lot of trouble. Um, after, after that's done, as long as there's an interest, I really want to include a special section on uh, Gallipoli, on Egypt, and I want to do a whole bunch of jungle fighting with the colonial troops for Germany, France, England, the Ascari, you know, the, Senegal the Senegalese, you know, all those guys. I really love colonial troops. I just didn't think I should launch with an obscure portion of the war. <laughs> so, well, so there's like the, um, when I think about this, like with bolt action, like the prime rule book, you can see Europe, 1944, 45 Western Front was like the idea, the main rule book. Then they did theater expansions of like um, Italian campaign, North Africa campaign, Burma. Um, yeah. This type because, um, I mean, Rommel earned his Iron Cross in Italy. Uh, him and seven guys at the end charging up the mountains, um, yeah. taking on machine gun nests single handedly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and that actually, I will be. I'm going to release free single rule sets of famous people. Okay. Because it'll be fun to have Rummel and Tolkien and, you know, some of the other World War II heroes uh, in World War One. because, I mean, you just don't get them a lot. Um, yeah. Patton, Puller, and MacArthur were all yeah. Yeah, lieutenants yeah. and captains. And yeah. And York. I'd like to include York. Oh, yeah. Sergeant York, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of people I want to pull in. Um, like, uh, the guy I'm working on right now is, of course, I can't think of his name now. He's a Canadian Native. Uh, native. It, of course, it doesn't come to me now. Um, I will have to think of his name. <laughs> but, I mean, he's a sniper with... Uh, uh, he did multiple raids. He was a messenger, and I think he is somewhere in the ballpark of 300 confirmed kills. Uh, so I'm going to be releasing models and then just free rules to tell you where you can take him and or where you can take any of the characters in special slots and stuff like that. And I don't feel that there's a need to charge for those. Yeah. Oh, so that brings up the point here. Let's let's talk about some of the sculpts. So you actually have sculpts that go with this game since no one really makes some of the oddball, like like we talked about uh, previously, like War Games Atlantic makes a great plastic kit that you can customize, but there is a limit of how much green stuff you can put on a little model with you know the average person's sculpting skills. Exactly. So how do you decide what to sculpt and where do you get the inspiration from the sculpts? So the first part is my Google search history, which is strange items of World War One. <laughs> okay. You know, let's, I, let's start there. And then I start fishing them out. Like, okay, this was used. This was never used. This was on the drawing board, you know, stuff like that. And so I just, uh, like, it sounds simple, but the rain cloaks, I don't think there's another company out there that no models with them there. and and i think they add such dynamic flow and character to the models that i mean i don't it, it was kind of this no-brainer like well i love that and it looks good you know let's put it on there <laughs> you know and then uh you've got like the shields and the body armor uh 
some of the, the different helmets and designs. And it's really just a mix of artistic liberty as far as like, okay, I know there were not a lot of these out there, but it would look great on a mini, you know, and only a few people are going to run it. So the, that's why we have the German sniper with three different head versions. You know, if you want to run that, that really unique sniper mask, or if you want some more of like an Alpen type troop hat, or just your traditional uh, Stahlhelm, you can do that. Uh, so I just, I wanted to be not another sculpting miniature for World War One. There, there's plenty of World War One miniatures yeah. out there. Plenty of them. I, from, I have really... some of them behind me. So yeah, so that's why I, so I, like I said, I caught onto yours just from the unique sculpts because some of your sculpts I've seen in textbooks, but I've never seen anyone actually make a miniature for that. Because like I said, it was experimental and most games right. aren't focused on the experimental end. Right. And I have the luxury of, well, I only need to sculpt one of these. Warlord, for example, they can't do that because well, you need an entire squad and it just, you know, the mechanics don't work for that individuality. So, so the luxury is, is I can do those one-offs where other companies can't because they're making squad size games. You don't, you don't want an entire squad wearing the same sniper mask. I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't work for a few reasons, but uh, I have the ability to do that. So you're, are you sculpting yourself in what, like Tinkercad or um, so how are I you doing not, that? I am not good at organic sculpting at all. Uh, I can do, I can do most things, not organics. So no humans. Um, so Miska Miniatures does that for me and he's amazing um, but we do, or I do the, the sketches, get the designs and the concepts, poses, and then I just let him go to town. Okay. Um, so I noticed when I go to um, your site to actually buy this, you have physical prints and some of the STLs. Um, is your thought to have sell both down the line here? Because as you start expanding into other theaters, and you start getting into some of the rare troop choices. Let's say, for example, Gurkha's on the Western Front and Six on the Western Front. No one talks about them. Right. No one has rules for them, but they existed. So would that something of like, hey, no one's really going to want them, but I'll put them out as STLs or it's not worth my time to um, put these guys out. Just take some World War II guys and reverse engineer them into World War One. So as you push forward and some of these like rare cases, are there ones that you're just going to pass on? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a history buff and, and I just, I can't say no. <laughs> you know, I need to see correct world war one Sikhs and world war one Gurkhas, Sengalese, Ascari, you know, I want to see all those. And, and I don't, I don't want reverse engineered, miniatures i mean you can do it kit bashing and they look fine but between rivet counters sometimes oh, well that's the wrong pouch equipment or you know the wrong model rifle but i just i don't mind taking the time to put out what we should have okay because I, I have to admit i was listening to some of your um other uh interviews you've done and you brought up the portuguese in yeah. world war one and um 
you've mentioned here the Japanese. No one really talks about those or like Exactly. the little, the little German island colony out in the Pacific that the Japanese bravely stormed. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. Wait, well, and that's why I want those. I want those. If for no other reason, they're going on my shelf. <laughs> you know, but I mean, like the Portuguese I use all the time because uh, I love their uniforms. I just think they're really cool looking. And uh, as, a, as a hobbyist goes, you can totally skimp out and just buy World War I Brits. and paint them in the, the appropriate Portuguese colors. Because by the time the Portuguese were doing some of their more famous actions, they had gone through all of their own equipment and they were just British soldiers in a different colored uniform. But, uh, but I, will, I will get some Portuguese out with their uh, fluted helmets, their fluted Brody style helmets. So if you want those earlier Portuguese, they'll be there. Yeah, because they have those funny garrison covers too, which Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I, I've seen some examples of those. Um, but that brings a point I want to address here. So, do you see this as a game engine of where you can push it into other time periods of scenarios? So the the question is Yes. reskinning. So Yes. you have the gun that shoots kind of fast. but inaccurately the gun that shoots slow. So that's the standard at the end of the day. It's just this shoots fast. This shoots slow. This is armor, not armor. It doesn't Yes. have to be world war one, world war two. Um, So so do you a see little, this as a game engine that you're going to port into other. I do. Originally, it was just going to be World War I. But after positive reviews and the fact that it does play well with other minis uh i i do plan on just using it now as a game engine to bring up some other things um uh, i was in reconnaissance in the army for seven years and i am already working on a modern adaptation for this Okay. this engine and i've even toyed with doing something that's a little orson wells type science fiction For any of those fans that, that like the mechanics but want to use a blaster, for example. So it will be progressing into more of a game system and people can, that way people can use whatever minis. I mean, clearly War Corgi uses his Star Wars miniatures and it works. Yes, we've talked about that. He uses So. his rebel troops for anything he doesn't have. Yeah, so, and I mean, it works. I mean, we all know that the, the German Empire, you know, and the stormtroopers, come on, they all work. They all work. Wait, <laughs> so. I, I think that's the point because I've seen, um, was it Forbidden Psalms Last War has taken the weird World War One. Gannis Gaming has done the similar thing with Shattered Crown of taking some of that. Orwellian um, World War Mars approach of like it's World War One, but versus Martians or World War One, but here's zombies and they're kind of like instead of conflict 47, conflict, Yeah. you know, 1918. Yeah. I'd um, so those are always little twists that people put on it. But, you know, that brings us back to sculpting. Would you do sculpts for, you know, Space 1889 or um, World War One uh, British troops on Mars? I'd like to do that stuff. I I have this abnormally long list of, you know, dream things to add to the game. Some of them some of them won't make it, I get it. But I mean, for example, um, I couldn't do it the, the first year because there's so much involved in getting it out the, you know, from starting from scratch.
but uh, next next October for 2023, I'd actually like to introduce uh, you know a headless horseman German messenger just for a one-off type scenario. You know, maybe some British zombies, just a couple Halloween-themed minis, a free little rule set of how to use them. That way, you could just you you could just have that little bit of fun, you know, like maybe a over-the-top Hollywood villain trying to create some sort of super gas in the trenches, you know, just something, just add a little more flavor, a little more fun, because in the end of the day, that's really all I care about. I just want people to enjoy my game and have fun with it. So let's talk about how can I get this game? So let's say I've heard this podcast. Where do I go to find you on the socials or uh, to purchase your stuff? How do I go about doing that? So the, the easiest way is going to be to go to Facebook and look up Scouts Out. Uh, it's Scouts Out Raids and Reconnaissance uh, in 1914 to 1918. Our logo is a stormtrooper, gas mask, helmet, and two cross spades. That's the easiest way. Once you get on there, there's links to the Gumroad store. Uh, if you're a European Union guy, it's going to be easier to use Wargaming 3D. Uh, they just have a better platform for European customers. Uh, it's going to have a link to our Instagram and our gaming group. So if you want to post pictures or ask questions or see what's coming, those are all going to be the easiest way. Uh, also, if you have a if you do end up buying a physical or digital rule book, if you ever need to get back to us, uh, on page two, there's a QR code. You just scan it. It takes you straight to our store. Okay. And so I can go, we're in the U.S., so I can go to your gum, get on Facebook, go to the Gumroad, and you have different packs for like the physical and the STL, yep. Yep. PDF and physical rule book. Yep, um, we've got digital rule books. We've got physical rule books, which uh, because we're the company's so small, it does take a little bit of, you know, we'll do bulk orders. So if you pre-order a physical rule book, you instantly get a digital one, and then we will ship out the, the physical when they come in stock. Uh, we've got STL files for every model we make individual. Uh, we've got a, every STL file and physical file grouped into squads for a slight discount. Um, and then uh, they've all been just recently updated with also uh, STL bases. So instead of having to go track down more bases from GW or get some laser cut wood bases, if you've got a printer, you now you've got STLs for bases that'll work. All right, so with the physical items, any risk exposure on the um, manufacturing or supply chain like um, if I order from you physical any call like I'm sorry so there's this canal in the Sinai and your models on the ship turn sideways um, <laughs> I don't think so everything's coming from me okay I'm, I'm US based and I produce everything alright now um, this is a, the last question but I noticed you didn't choose Kickstarter. And I always find this fascinating to ask different sized businesses. Some live and die on Kickstarter. Other ones won't touch it. What were your thoughts of why you didn't go that route? Their fees are too high for 
a one-man operation. I haven't heard that explanation. So even so, you, I found you, but I know Kickstarter offers, I guess, the media hype that people love to play into. You didn't see yeah. the advantage of the media hype. I just don't. I just don't like them. I've looked through them and. I think they work for some people. They just didn't for me, you know, and it's easier on the books to be like, all right, so I've spent this much time, this much money invested. This is what my return needs to be. I don't have to worry about outsider fees or, you know, markups or time delays. Everything happens in real time when I do it for how much and when I do it. So I, I think you bring a good, I think World War One skirmish, you could probably find everyone who was going to buy your stuff on Facebook. You, there's probably not, if you had a Kickstarter campaign, it's not like someone's out there. You know, I wanted a water bottle, but you know what? I, I'll try out World War One skirmish for gaming too. You know, I, and like I said, I, maybe in the future, you know, maybe in the future, but I just didn't, I don't know. I didn't need it, so to speak. I just decided I was going to start on my own, do it on my own, accomplish it on my own. And that's where we're at. And any thoughts about this is, this is the new job. This is what you do now. Make, well, make games. I, well, that would be the dream, right? Uh, I'm actually retired. <laughs> okay. But I substitute teach. Um, so it'd be great. It would be great, but uh, I, I'm not so sure not so sure a one-man operation could produce <laughs> that much income to be like, oh, we're done now. But I mean, living like it's everybody's dream to live that, I guess, right? You know. Oh. Well, let, let me ask you: Do you ever see a point with um, some of your models? Um, so I normally have a a list of questions I asked, but there's something the Siocast machines. I know. So you've doing the 3D printing route, and I've asked right. Scatus Gaming there. What would it take to go up to a Siocast machine? Um, well, people have mixed thoughts on it. It's a 50 grand investment, but based upon their demos, they could grind out miniatures like right. well, uh, no one's business for the small businessman. I have the luxury of being friends with the owners of Trenchworks. So there could be potential for, for more streamlined, bigger operations. But we'll just leave it at that. No, okay. All right. So before we wrap it up, um, let me ask you, is there anything I forgot to ask? Anything else you want to bring up that I that we didn't delve into here? Um, I mean, not really. Uh let's see. I do want to say that I get a lot of questions. I paint a lot of miniatures. I have painted a lot of miniatures in my life. And I paint a lot of historic ones, and I get just so many emails or social media questions tags what color did you use or you, you have know, a painting guide i i yes. forgot to bring that up yes yep. i have a have painting that. guide i made sure to include it it's got if you want it to look you know or if you want the colors to match what i use for all the miniatures for our demos and our pictures then it is in the book you know feel free to do your own colors obviously my, one of my best friends Loves purple. I just know his forces are going to end up purple. I can live with it. I love him. He's a good guy. 
but I, I just know that purple Germans are in my future. But if that's your thing, do it. If you want to have some historical accuracy, check out the painting guide in the rule book. It's easy. I have all the c colors in there, coded, labeled. It's fun and, and it works. <laughs> yeah, because I, I thought that was one of the big things that you did put instead of going out researching the rare experimentals, here's a paint guide, but what's your preferred paint? Like when you put this together, are you a P3 army painter, Vallejo? Citadel? So I love, I love Vallejo and I love Citadel sprays. So I like using Citadel sprays. I like using Vallejo bases and I like using Citadel washes. I mean, Washes are like talent in a bottle. Come on. <laughs> you put wash on a model, even if you're a bad painter, it still looks amazing. You know, so so that's it. It's it's a Vallejo and Citadel mix. Um, I don't really enjoy Army Painter, and I actually really like P3, but P3, all the colors I like in P3 are colors you would never see on a historic battlefield. You know, I like their, their shades of turquoise and such. So, so I like P3. I just don't use them for this project. Okay. I There's certain paints out of every range, like um, GW's Mephiston Red, their base, that can master any other. If you black, single coat will cover the black. The P3s, those bottles will last forever. Yeah. Um, Army Painter, some are thinner than others. I'm going to and... go with all of them are thinner than others. Uh... I I, I like their whites. The whole, I okay. I have not used their whites, but all their other colors I've used. I'm like, okay, so I'll need 30 layers from my army painter, or just one from Citadel. Okay, well, let's just get rid of these. So, uh, I, I have to admit, I bring my paints with me whenever I travel, and so I live in New Mexico. So you probably understand this, Utah. If you go to a lower altitude and bring your army painter sealed, they're fine. If you bring them to a higher altitude. And you unscrew them the first time, it just Mount Vesuvius with paint because it, <laughs> as it's repressurizing itself. So I lose a lot of paint when I bring them back up uh, into the mountains here. Um, okay. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. I'll start bad mouthing P3. Love their paints, but I hate their customer service. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, CK. And um, thanks for coming on Miniature Wargaming Labs and talking about um, some of the small scale. World War One skirmish. Um, I haven't bought it yet, but I'm going to go on here uh, pretty soon, and I'm going to buy some of your awesome minis. Really like those. Was going to buy those anyways, and I'll go ahead and throw on the rule book. I appreciate the support, and um, I'm going to send you over some pictures. Feel free to post them. Uh, they have not been posted, so you'll have a little bit of uh, exclusivity right there. Well, uh, hopefully, in a couple months, you'll see War Corgi and I playing. Uh, the games uh, be awesome. there when I when I meet up with him. All right, for everyone out there, thanks for listening to Miniature Wargaming Labs, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>